0: Hey, good evening, New Life Downtown. How is everybody tonight? Good? It's great to see those of you who are in the room and those of you who are watching online. I hope and pray that you are safe and you are well. We miss you and so glad that we can at least have these moments of connection over all of the technology that we have. A couple of quick announcements before we dive into our service tonight. First of all, I mentioned last week that Pastor Glenn went in for surgery on his vocal cord on Wednesday. And I'm so pleased to announce that the surgery was boring. It's exactly the kind of surgery that you want. It went well. His follow-up was great. He is back in town. He's on a couple of weeks of silence, and then he goes in for a checkup, and then our hope is, is he'll be back in the pulpit in November. Uh, so we continue to pray for you, Pastor Glenn. We love you, and we miss you. Also want to say a special hi to all the kids in the room tonight. Hi. Thanks for joining us, you guys. We're glad you're here. We're going to try to shorten the service to about 60, 65 minutes if possible. So parents, thanks for coming. Thanks for bringing your kids. We've got a special treat uh, tonight in many ways. Uh, We are continuing our series tonight called The Last Word. It's the series that we've been in through the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. And tonight we have a special guest with us, Dr. Ben Witherington III. And Dr. Witherington, I have known for several years. He is one of the world's leading New Testament scholars. He teaches at my alma mater, Asbury Theological Seminary. And he's here this week because if you've missed any of the announcements, New Life Asbury Seminary have entered into a partnership together where they now have an extension site here in Colorado Springs over in the World Prayer Center so that those who are wanting to do master's work in Bible and theology and other uh, areas of Christian discipline, you can do that here. And he's been in for the first hybrid course. It's kind of online and then a couple days in person. So he's been teaching New Testament intro there. So he taught Our staff on Thursday morning, he taught class all Thursday night. He taught all day Friday. He was here for the Friday night service Friday night. He taught all day Saturday. We were out east all morning today, and he's here with us again tonight. So the man has been getting his work in. (laughs) Uh, But this has been his whole career. Dr. Witherington has written over 60 books including a commentary on every book in the New Testament. Uh, so he's got a brilliant commentary on the book of Revelation and more of an introductory book uh, called Jesus in the End Times, which I was going to have here to show you, but I gave it away after the second service this morning. Um, you can find that on Amazon. Several of his books have been rated the Biblical Studies Book of the Year by Christianity Today. He is a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant scholar. But he's more than that. He's a man who deeply loves Jesus and deeply loves the church. He's committed his life to faithfully serving God and serving his people and trying to help us understand what the scriptures are saying so that we can live faithful lives to our God. So, would you please welcome my friend, Dr. Ben Witherington III, tonight as he comes? And as Dr. Witherington comes, I want to kind of set the stage for us a little bit tonight. And I want to ask this question to all of us. Can we tonight, as followers of Jesus, can we commit to be learners tonight? Can we commit to just to be open to learn from one of the church's greatest living teachers? To be a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple, is to be a learner it's what the word means, it means to be a student, to learn from Jesus how to live like Jesus, is to take a posture of saying, okay, Jesus, I want to learn from you, both new things that I've never thought about before, as well as maybe challenging things or things that I have to unlearn to learn something different tonight. So throughout the course, as we're interviewing, as I'm interviewing Dr. Witherspoon, you're gonna hear things that you go, yes, And there'll be other things you hear like, I've never heard that before, or I heard something different than that before. And what I'm asking tonight is just for us to have an open mind. Now, as Dr. Withering says, not such an open mind that your brain falls out, but an open mind to say, okay, Lord, what are you have to teach me today? Because there'll be some things that are not, that will not line up with sort of the popular versions of Revelation, but sometimes the things that are popular are not the most credible. They're not the most accurate. They're not the things that actually align with how the early church would have understood these things. So, Dr. Winnington, as a way to get us back into this book tonight, would you remind us what kind of book is this and how should we approach it as the people of God?
1: Well, the first thing to say is there's a reason this is the last book in the Bible. It's the most complex book in the Bible. This is not where you go with beginners and say, start here. In fact, the truth is that many of the greatest commentators on the Bible who ever lived didn't understand this book. John Calvin wrote a book commentary on almost every book of the Old Testament, and every book of the New Testament except the book of Revelation, and he said, non cognosco, I don't understand it. (laughs) John Wesley in his notes on the New Testament said, I'm borrowing the notes from Johannes Bingle, a good German scholar, I don't swear that this is the right interpretation, but here we go. (laughs) In other words, there's a long history of not understanding this, and, and it is so complex. And involved that I would urge you if you're just beginning your Christian pilgrimage or beginning to study the Bible seriously don't start with this book okay so that's the first disclaimer the second thing to say is that what this book is is a book of visionary prophecy not auditory prophecy like Amos heard something and then he said thus saith Yahweh quote this is visionary prophecy that has both a visual element and an auditory element. And here's the thing about that If you simply hear a late word from God, you can repeat it verbatim. But if you see a vision of heaven or of angels or of all kinds of other things in heaven, you have to describe it in human language. And when that happens, you will know as well as I do... No human language is adequate to describe God. God and heaven and all those supernatural things are much bigger than our vocabulary. So as a result of that, the prophet who sees these things is going to use analogies. It was like, it was like, it was like. And whenever you have a comparison of two unlike things that in some particular way is alike, then you need to figure out in what way Is it alike? So when, for example, when the psalmist says, when God came down, the hills skipped like rams. Okay, in what way are hills and rams alike? Hills are not fuzzy. You don't (laughs) shear them regularly. Uh, No, it's because when God comes down, all earth breaks loose. It's bouncing like a bouncing ram. So, visionary prophecy requires extra care and interpretation. And this kind of prophecy was very replete. It was common in early Judaism, and it involved a lot of metaphors, a lot of symbolic numbers, a lot of verbal hyperbole of various kinds. So all of these symbols and images and metaphors have a meaning, they have a referent. They are talking about a reality, but they are not talking about it in a literal way, okay? It is referential, it is speaking about a reality, but it is speaking about it in a figurative way, and that needs to be taken into account. Let me share with you what goes wrong when you don't do that. Um, One time, I was riding with a friend of mine after Neil Armstrong walked on the moon in the mountains of North Carolina in my daddy's old 55, and all of a sudden, my countenance fell because the clutch blew out. Now, if you know anything about the Bluegrass, about the Blue Ridge Parkway in North Carolina, 45-mile-an-hour speed limit, no filling stations, no gas stations, no help, abandon hope. So we had to be pushed <laughs> down an exit ramp into a Texaco station, and the mechanic there had no clue how to fix the 1955 car. It was way too old, to say the least. So we decided we would hitchhike back to the middle of the states, to High Point, North Carolina, our hometown, and we were picked up by two really ancient, elderly, wrinkly people in an old black 48 Plymouth, and they were wearing jet black. It was the first and only ride we could get. Now, Doug, today, is a lawyer in North Carolina. In fact, he's about to retire after 40-some years of practicing law in North Carolina, and he was loquacious. (laughs) And he wanted to talk about the recent things that had been happening on the news. So he said to the driver, Well, what would you think about Neil Armstrong walking on the moon and all those beautiful pictures of the world, which was blue and round and revolving? And the driver said, I kid you not, that's all fake. It's a Hollywood stunt. Never happened. And Doug, not recognizing invincible ignorance when he saw it, said, Well, why do you think that? And the man said, I kid you not, it says in the book of Revelations. Now, anybody who starts a sentence that way, you should turn off the TV. Because that's not even the name of the last book of the Bible. It's Revelation singular. Okay? Says in the book of Revelations, the angels will stand on the four corners of the earth. Couldn't be round if it's got four corners now, could it, mister? Wow. Now, what's wrong with his interpretation? What's wrong is he's taking figurative language literally. The lesson that we're supposed to learn from that is not geography, it's theology. Yeah. Are you with me yes. now? So you need to learn the skill of interpreting metaphorical and figurative and symbolic language to understand this book. And that has often been a challenge throughout church history.
0: Yeah. Yep. So we've been, over the last couple of weeks, we've... Um, and working through the book, we're now into Revelation chapter 12 and 13 tonight, which are a couple of the chapters that get talked about quite a bit, especially in a lot of the popular interpretations of this book. So in Revelation chapter 12, it begins this way. It says, Then a great sign appeared in heaven, and a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. And she was pregnant, and she cried out because she was in labor and pain from giving birth. And then another sign appeared in heaven, and it was a great fiery red dragon. This is why my daughter, Cora, loves this book so much. It's like, there's dragons in there, dad, with seven heads and ten horns and seven royal crowns on his head. And as the passage goes on, this dragon is trying to devour this child and the woman is running to the desert and then all of a sudden there's this cosmic battle and Michael, the archangel is throwing the dragon out of heaven and the dragon is chasing the woman on the earth and you're reading this and you're going, what? (laughs) What is happening? So Dr. Wintherton, help us understand these images. Who's this woman? Who's this dragon? Who's this child?
1: Uh, First of all, This is not from the Lord of the Rings. This is from the last book of the Bible. But I will tell you this. J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, was a devout Christian. And his image of the dragon smog was, in fact, based on this chapter here in the book of Revelation. So that's actually where he got the idea. So here's the deal. The woman represents the people of God, both Old Testament and New Testament people of God. And as a particular representative of the people of God, there is Mary who gives birth to the Messiah. And it's spoken of just briefly here. She gives birth to the man-child, and then he's taken up into heaven. So in other words, what's happened is we've skipped from Christmas to the ascension. (laughs) Okay, We've, We've skipped from the birth of Jesus to him being taken up into heaven. So that's the first bit. But the woman stays on earth because, guess what? The people of God continue. They don't go anywhere. It's Jesus who goes back to heaven. It's not the people of God. The people of God remain on earth, and they are persecuted, and they are prosecuted, and in the same cases, they are executed. And in the storyline, she flees into the wilderness, and old dragon breath tries to smoke her out and then drown her out of the wilderness. But God's not going to allow that to happen As Jesus said, even the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. Now, let's talk about the dragon. It is clearly an image of Satan. And the whole book of Revelation is a downer for Satan. He falls from heaven to earth. He falls from earth to the pit in Revelation 20, the first few verses. And then he's taken by the nape of his neck and thrown into the lake of fire. So he's going down. Down and did I mention down? The book of Revelation is telling you that God is progressively getting rid of evil. yeah He's progressively dealing with suffering and sin and disease and decay and death and the source of supernatural evil. So this is the message. God is in control and he's in a good mood. So <laughs> be of good cheer. But the other thing is that this book is indeed the book of martyrs. It's not a book that says, let's get ready to rumble. No, it's a book that says, be prepared to suffer and even be faithful unto death. This is the first place in Greek literature where the word martus means witness becomes a word that means witness unto death, hence a martyr. This is the first book where that ever happens. And what the author, John of Patmos, is telling us is that, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Not because there's no evil out there to fear. There's plenty of things that go bump in the night. But because thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Through whatever pandemics we have to go through, through whatever sufferings we may endure in life, the Lord is with us through it all. He's been there. He's done that. On the cross, he got the T-shirt. He's already (laughs) suffered unto death. And you know what? He's already given us everlasting life. So even death has no final hold on us. So this is a book of encouragement, even though it's filled with graphic imagery, and it would be an R-rated movie.
0: Yeah, so good. Okay, so it goes on from Revelation chapter 12 and giving us this picture of Christ and the church and the cosmic battle and the place of, of suffering and trial and tribulation that the church finds itself in. And then you turn the page and you go from a dragon to a beast. And you get in chapter 13, it says this, and I saw a beast Coming up out of the sea. And it had 10 horns and seven heads. And each of its horns was decorated with a royal crown. And on its heads were blasphemous names. And the beast I saw was like a leopard. And you notice the language it was like, and its feet were like a bear, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And the dragon gave it its power its throne, and its authority. And as the text goes on, we see it says, then one of its heads appeared to have been slain and killed, but its deadly wound was healed, and so the whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. And this passage, this chapter in particular, goes on and talks about not just this beast, but the mark of the beast, and the number 666, and all those things that come up in all of those books and movies and things. And so, Dr. Willington, can you help us understand what
1: What would John and his churches have understood these things to be? Again, remember, the earliest Christians were all Jews. And Jewish apocalyptic literature was the Marvel comics of its day. (laughs) I mean, it was extremely popular kind of literature. And early Jews understood the symbolism, okay? So that's important. So the dragon represents Satan. The beast represents a world ruler. And let's talk about 666 just for a minute. If 7 is the number of perfection, then 666 is the number of imperfection and chaos and destruction. Are you with me now? Are you getting the picture? It's a symbolic number, not a literal number. It's always a symbolic. 12 is the number of the people of God, Old Testament and New Testament, and so on. These are symbolic numbers. So the beast represents a beastly empire. And this image is taken from the book of Daniel. If you'll go back and read Daniel 5, 6, and 7, you will see there were four empires that came and rose and fell and came and rose and fell. And each one of them is represented as a beast. Why? Because it's an inhuman, an evil empire, if you will. It's a beastly, brutal empire. And the horns represent power, so it's, it's not just an empire, it's a powerful empire, so powerful that Christians can be persecuted and even executed by this particular empire. Now, in John's day, the empire du jour was the Roman Empire, And in fact, there was a famous emperor in the middle of the century who after 64 AD persecuted Christians. And I'll bet you know his name. His name was Nero. And now here's the interesting thing. They didn't have Arabic numbers back then. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10. No, they had using the letters of an alphabet as numbers. So letters of the alphabet had numerical significance. On the coin minted by Nero, his silver denarius with his fat face on it, there was an inscription which read Neron Kaiser Divi Filii Augusti, which translated means Nero Caesar, the divine son of Augustus. Guess what the numerical value of that inscription is if you add up the symbolic numbers of that name. Nero, Caesar is 666. But understand that this symbol represents any evil ruler of a large body of people. So, later Domitian was seen as Mr. 666 who ruled during the time of John of Patmos. Even later, Decian, Diocletian, Julian the Apostate, later Roman emperors, were said to be like Mr. 666 in this book. But we could keep going, because we've had gnarly rulers of empires in every age of human history. We could flash forward to the 20th century. Adolf Hitler could sit for this portrait as Mr. 666, who exterminated six million Jews in concentration camps. Are you getting the picture now? It is a critique of corrupt, evil empires and their rulers, and telling you what they're trying to do to the people of God. Persecute them, prosecute them, execute them, and eliminate them from the earth. But the book of Revelation says, no matter how much water the dragon spewed towards the woman, he could not exterminate her. So the message is, whatever trials and tribulations you go through in life, God is with you, And he will not let anybody steal your everlasting life. You will be spiritually protected, even if you lose your physical life. That's the message. But the other part of the message is leave justice in the hands of God. Earlier in the book of Revelation, the saints under the altar are cranky. I know that's not your image of heaven, but it's right there in the book of Revelation. They're up there singing, my mama done told me I'm having a bad day. How long, O oh Lord, how long? And they're given a choir robe and told to hush. But what they're impatient about is when is justice finally going to be done on the earth? When is redemption going to fully come on this earth? And the answer is when the slain lamb is good and ready to bring it. Yep. When the slain lamb is for good, here's our really good news. Our judge is our savior. Yeah, The only one worthy to unseal the seals, pour out the bowls, and tell the people to blow, the angels to blow the trumpets, is Jesus himself. He will return as the judge of the earth, and he will return as the redeemer of the earth. Hallelujah. And short of that, we're supposed to leave justice in the hands of God. Yeah. This book is not about us taking up arms and fighting. It is about us being ready to suffer like Jesus suffered and be a faithful witness even unto death and leave justice and mercy in the hands of God. And one more thing, heaven up there is depicted as a beautiful, very clean bus station on the way to the new heaven and new earth. In other words, our final destination is not Somewhere out there. Our final destination is right down here. Because the groom, Christ, is returning for his bride. And when he returns, he raises the dead. And where we will be after that is here in the new creation on the new earth. Why would you think a creator God who made all of this big, beautiful universe would exchange that for a few scrawny souls in heaven? That's not the deal. Yeah. Our final destination is the new creation, the new heaven and new earth. And that's the end of the story in Revelation 21 and 22.
0: Yeah. So one of the things that sometimes is confusing to folks who are trying to read through the book of Revelation, especially if they've been exposed to various kind of views, of this is seeing, uh, reading the book in its entirety, you find Christians who are suffering. This is one of the things that we see to the John's churches that he's writing to, that they find themselves oppressed under the Roman Empire. They find John himself, finds himself exiled because of his faith in Christ. And sometimes we're looking through this book and we're looking for an escape hatch. Like, but but where's our ticket out of that, around it, through it? Like, there's got to be something else here. And it's become actually quite popular for a lot of Christians, especially in just the last couple of hundred years, to move kind of out of the book of Revelation into a passage in Matthew and into a passage in 1 Thessalonians and to advocate for something called the rapture. Now, if you're new to the church or new to the Bible, the idea of a rapture is something like this idea that before things get really bad, Jesus will kind of partially come back, not fully come back, but he'll come back and he'll sort of beam up all of the Christians and take them away. And then things will get really, really, really bad. And then he'll come back again later. And so I'm going to read a passage where this kind of comes from, and then I'm going to let Dr. to kind of talk about this for a little bit. So this actually is found in First Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verses 16 and 18 is kind of the most common passage that gets talked about here. So it says, this is because the Lord himself will come down from heaven with the signal of a shout by the head angel and a blast on God's trumpet. And first what will happen is that those who are dead in Christ will rise. And then everyone who is still alive, then we who are living and still around, will be taken up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And that way we will always be with the Lord. And so encourage one another with these words. So Dr. Withenshaw, would you talk to us about this idea of the rapture? Is it biblical? Where does this come from? How should we understand these passages?
1: The first Real evidence that anybody interpreted the Bible in terms of a pre- or mid-tribulation rapture comes in the 17th century with some Baptists in England. And then there was a revival in Scotland in the early 19th century in Glasgow where a young girl named MacDonald claimed to have had a vision of a pre-tribulation rapture. And that idea might have come and gone, but there was a famous British preacher there named Darby. And that might have come and gone, even though he was the founder of a small denomination called the Plymouth Brethren. But he was an evangelist and came to America. And he evangelized in America in the early 19th century. And he met Mr. Dwight L. Moody, as in Moody Press, Moody Bible Institute, and Dwight L. Moody really was the Billy Graham of his day. And Darby convinced Dwight L. Moody that this was a true biblical theology, a theology of a rapture of the faithful out of the world when things really got dark, dangerous, and ugly. Well. The earlier part of church history knew nothing about this. Christians in the first, second, third, all the way up to the 17th century had never heard of this idea. And to this day, it is not part of Roman Catholic theology. It's not part of Orthodox theology. It's not even part of many Protestant theologies. For example, Methodist theology. Even most Protestants don't like this idea. But it has been enormously successfully Uh, propagated with lay people through the Schofield Reference Bible and through the, wait for it, Left Behind series. So I'm here tonight to tell you that the Left Behind series should be Left Behind (laughs) because they they are not interpreting Jewish apocalyptic prophecy at all correctly. So we need to go through two passages rather quickly to show you that there ain't no rapture in the New Testament. Unless, of course, you're talking about the ascension of Jesus. But then we're not Jesus, so we don't get in on that. Okay? So first of all, I want to deal with Matthew 24 just briefly. Jesus says that in the last days, it will be like in the days of Noah. Now, remember the story of Noah? What happened? He built an archiarchy, right? He put the animals in the ark. And he put his family in the ark. And because of that, they were saved when the flood cleansed the earth of all the gross sinners on earth. And the language is very clear. And they were taken away in the flood. It was good to be left behind like Noah and his family. And the same applies, says Jesus, to the analogies that he uses. He says two women will be grinding at a mill. One will be taken away and the other left behind. Guess which one is happy? It's the one left behind saying, I'm so glad I wasn't taken away for judgment. Because being taken away is not being taken up to heaven. It's being taken away in judgment. I don't think any of us want that, okay? So, in 1 Thessalonians 4, which is the chief proof text for this, I like to say a text without a context is just a pretext for whatever you want it to mean. Here's the context. Thessaloniki, the city of Thessaloniki, was a walled city named after the sister of Alexander the Great, and it had a long history of royal visitations by kings and queens and other such famous people. Now, when a royal visit comes, it is preceded by a herald, a trumpet blower, who announces that the king is coming. Here comes the king. Here comes the king, right? So picture a walled city. Picture... People coming up the road to Thessaloniki picture in front of that a herald with a trumpet da, 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 da. lift up your heads O ye gates be lifted up ye ancient doors so the king of glory may come in and then on the wall there's a watchman that says who is the king of glory who is the king stand and deliver who are you talking about they identify themselves And when the people in the city are satisfied that this is a king they want to welcome into the city, then they send out the greeting committee. And the greeting committee goes out to meet the king on the road, and they don't go back down the road where the king came from. They all go into the city and celebrate. Now, that is the image that Paul is using, which the Thessalonians would be well familiar with. And so what he's saying is when King Jesus returns, and there's only one return, the visible, very noisy, louder than your praise band coming of the second (laughs) coming, Okay, when Jesus comes with his angels, the dead in Christ will be raised. Those who are Christians alive then will be transformed. And notice there are Christians on the earth when that happens. And we will go out up into the clouds and the air to meet him. There are no clouds in heaven. In fact, the air he's talking about is not a synonym for heaven. So there's nothing said here about us going up into heaven to be with Jesus. It says we will meet him in the air and be with him forever. But every single P-Pick and Thessalonian would have known <laughs> that where you go from there is down to rule on the earth with Jesus. Yeah. Hallelujah. That's the end of the story. Not be me up, Scotty. <laughs> there is no theology of a pre- or mid-tribulation rapture. Whatever suffering we have to go through in this life, You can't suffer more than die, and that's been going on for 2,000 years of Christian history. Here are the good news. God reveals enough about the future to give you hope, but not so much that you don't have to live by faith every single day. And so in addition to there not being a rapture, God is not going to tell you how long before he's coming again. Indeed, every time anybody in church history has tried to predict the date of the second coming, and do that kind of theological weather forecasting, there's been a 100% failure rate. If you had a weatherman here in Colorado Springs who had a 100% failure rate at prediction, you'd turn off the TV. You should turn off the televangelists who tell you we know what's <laughs> happening next because, frankly, they don't know. Jesus himself said in that, of that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, not even the Son on earth, only the Father knows, and He's not telling. Why is He not giving us a timetable? Because if we had a timetable, we could manipulate things. We would think, okay, Jesus is coming back in 53 days. I've got 52 days to sow my wild oats and send as much as I want and spend all kinds of lavish money on myself, and then at the last minute repent. Is he going to let that happen? No. Jesus says he will come like a thief in a night, at an unexpected time, at a secret time, when you least expect it. And he's not going to give us a timetable. So it's quite impossible to read current historical events into the book of Revelation, of which John would be totally ignorant. He'd never heard of Iraq or Iran or Russia or China. He'd never heard of the president we have. He's never heard of any of this. It made sense to him because he knew that the real message was God is in control and he will take care of all these things. And whatever suffering Christians have to go through, through one tribulation after another, after another, he will be with us walking through the valley of the shadow of death and holding our hand all the way to eternity. And this is why Paul says, Neither death, nor life, nor powers, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor anything in all of creation can snatch us out of the hands of the God who loves us. Yeah. Hallelujah. Yeah. There's the good news. Don't listen to the bad news. Base your life on the good news and not on false prophecy.
0: Say that line one more time. He gives us just enough about the future.
1: He gives us just enough about the future to give us hope, but not so much that we don't have to live by faith every single day. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, not a blueprint of everything that's happening between now and then. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, a conviction about things that we don't yet see. Here you can take this to the bank. Jesus is coming back. It's the fact of his return and his final triumph, not the timing that God has sworn to us and promised for us. And that's the reality we cling to in regard to the future.
0: Amen. Friends, can you th- join me in thanking Dr. Witherington for being here with us tonight? Dr. Witherington, thank you so very much. If you want to go ahead and grab your communion amongst those of you who are at home, here in the room, it's going to take a couple minutes to get that plastic off. Uh, but that is the great encouragement to us. Our hope is that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no And...